Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week's episode we have... Lauren. Lachlan. Camille. And Justin. So we can find out how to study the brain in action in groups using infrared technology, the very stuff that makes your remote control work. We also find out how our brains recognise nonsense words and how that may end up helping people with learning difficulties and dyslexia. And now we launch into our Launchpad News segment. Hey guys, do you ever sometimes feel like it's hard to understand what it is I'm thinking about? There's a lot of jokes that you make that I really don't get. I spend most of my time trying to catch up. But that might just be because I don't understand memes. Well, yeah, it's also because you're pretty old, Justin. But for the rest of you guys, I'm sure you'll often have trouble figuring out what I'm thinking, what I'm trying to express myself as sometimes. Is that right? Yes. (laughs) Okay. But very difficult. Okay. Well, I think there's a breakthrough in technology that might make it easier because we've had some sort of... We've invented some sort of a laser device that can almost act like um, a mind-reading machine. How? Wait. (laughs) should be able to use this device to understand how it works, right? If I put it at your brain, then I'll understand. And we won't have any need for a podcasting medium anymore. Just hook it straight to yeah, exactly. the brain point direct in neural interface. Exactly. Coming soon, 2016. But until then, what are we actually doing? So, infrared spectroscopy is um, using energy waves in the form of sort of... Um, so, electromagnetic radiation is a form of energy, right? Like It's emitted yes. like light and stuff like and that. And light is part of the electromagnetic spectrum. Exactly. Um, and infrared energy is also part of the spectrum, which is like light, but it's um, a shorter wavelength. Yes. It's, it's, it's often sort of conflated with heat and heat energy and stuff and like that. And you can't see it, but you can actually detect it with other stuff. Exactly, using like computers. That's how night vision goggles work. Yes, yes it is. Um, and remotes. Yes. And old Nokia phone, phone transfer technology. Yes, infrared, infrared ah. technology ah. is very, very yes. useful, Justin. <laughs> but that's not my point. <laughs> My point is that infrared radiation can actually be passed through the human brain with no negative side effects because it's not a high enough energy to do any damage. Oh, so if like, I press the remote at like Camille's head continuously, uh, she's not going to die from that. No, she's not going to die from that. Well, that's good. I'm glad. Goodness. And that's uh, positive side effects. Is she going to become a superhero? Um, Am on. I going to be able to read them all? No, infrared radiation <laughs> isn't even ionizing radiation. It's just normal. Honest, hard-working radiation, okay? Damn it. But the premise of this technology, right, is if you do pass a remote and the light from a remote through Camille's brain... Yes. ...the bits of her brain that are more oxygenated will absorb more light, more energy. And the bits that have more oxygen in them are also the more hard-working bits. So we can actually pass infrared light through the human brain to see what parts of the brain are working the hardest during different activities. Well, that's amazing, because that's almost like... An MRI, except without the massive, really complicated machine and the really high levels of radiation we have to do there. Yeah, there's, there's very little um, like ionising radiation. You don't need to worry about all the complicated magnetic fields and metal interferences and stuff like that. And you can move around and the technology still works. You just need to have a big enough remote that I can point at your head to click. Yeah, or maybe... An actual laser. Yeah, that would also work. That would also help. So what do we actually use this... Um, how does we get from a... How do we get from an infrared laser that lights up different parts of the brain to understanding what's going on in the mind. So you need to find um, applications. So it it's just gives you a new tool to ask questions. 
Right. Um, and you can ask a lot more robust questions because you can see humans interacting and experiencing things in real life situations and not in a massive metal cocoon. Exactly, which is not how we spend most of our time. Unless that is how you spend most of your time, Lauren. If so, I hope you enjoy that. But I don't really enjoy that. I read a lot of comics that way. Fair enough, fair enough. But they've actually found, right, in this study, they've used this brain mapping technology to see um, how brains work during situations of group work and leadership. So can we measure multiple brains at once while using this technique? Uh, yes, with multiple, um, basically, laser um, laser detector combinations, you can scan the brains of as many people as you like. As long as you have an array set up to configure to look at the people in the area, then you should be able to do that, yeah. Yes. person in my lab doesn't do any of the work correctly? Yes. Wait, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> that person specifically, I think, they're having, um, they just know that you can do the work, Justin, so they're just rather... Standing back and letting me yeah, do it. Even though I'm stuffing it up and doing it wrong. Oh, they still get the degree. Okay. But no, besides that very specific situation, what it allows you to do is, um, in group work conversations, uh, group, group conversations and group work, you can actually find out who the leader is in a group by scanning the brain activity of all the people. And you'll actually find that the followers of a group will match their brain activity to be more like the leader. How does that work, though? They can't actually read each other's minds. <laughs> Unless. Uh, that's a really good question, Camille, and unfortunately that goes beyond the scope of the study. So all this study actually shows is that it looks like um, leaders and followers will sync up brain activity. It does raise so many questions like that, like, how the heck does this work? Does it, um, what, what are the mechanisms of function? We, we don't really know any of that yet, but it's just very interesting that often you can feel, like, and scope out who a leader would be in a group, um, and that's actually provable by analysing our brain waves. So they're saying that it's basically some sort of neural synchronization between the members in the group around an idea, and it's that they're all, instead of synchronising around a point, they're actually synchronising around the leader's sort of brain activity patterns. That's right. And which may represent their ideas and thoughts and plan. That's right. But it's not only what they say. Yeah. Um, so the leader won't always be the person who talks the most. Um, they've found that it's the quality of your messages and not the quantity of your messages. For example, Justin and I talk a lot in podcasts. But Lauren has a lot more interesting things to actually say. So what you're suggesting is if we put up a laser scanning thing, that Lauren would be the secret leader? The shadow king? This is an hour in high school who's But it could be, and yes, I would suggest that, definitely. So how do they figure that out, like, the difference between it being the quality versus quantity? It's because different parts of the brain light up when you're thinking and processing different things. So the parts of the brain that had to do with things like empathy and seeing other things from other people's point of views, um, those things were lit up, but the parts of the brain to do with stuff like language and language processing, which you'd expect um, to light up if speaking was a big contributing factor, that didn't actually light up at all. That's really actually really interesting, because it, it's showing the 
a lot of the qualities of leadership that is hard to define, it's actually defining them in a reasonably scientific way and measuring them in action, which is really quite cool because people spend a lot of money and pay a lot of hard-earned dollars to go to prestigious universities like Harvard, Carnegie Mellon, to learn business management skills. And there's not really a lot of empirical science about it other than just do the thing, be a leader, and, uh, and you learn tips and tricks and methods, but this is actually a lot of scientific analysis of why things are successful, because we can actually look at the brain, which you can't really do in an MRI setting. Unfortunately, I think there were a few setbacks with this study, wasn't it? Um, when they set it up, they actually had all-male groups like who had a lot of things in common physically, um, and all-female groups, and they were very homogenous groups. Um, so a lot of the study can't be pushed towards like diverse groups. So what you're saying is that one of the weaknesses of this analysis is that the control groups were too similar, which I guess they were for an initial study in a field. That's what you want. You want to have a similar homogenous thing so that you can calibrate it. As a proof of concept, it's there, but to really draw a lot of conclusions, you need a wider, more diverse study and style of, um, sorry, a wider diverse study of leadership styles, personalities, and people right down to the brain level. And um, the researchers themselves said that um, having a more diverse um, group of ages, genders, races, and social classes would be a really good way to expand the study and see how robust it is when you've got real life groups of people who are interacting with each other. So we can't yet build a cult of, like, um, a diverse group of people. I should be building a cult of people just like me. I thought that's what you were doing with this podcast. (laughs) So this research was done by the Max Planck Institute for Human, Cognitive and Brain Sciences in Leipzig, the State Key Laboratory of Cognitive Neuroscience and Learning, and the IDG McGovern Institute for Brain Research in Beijing. And if you want to read more about this article, you can actually find this published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences or look up the various journal article publication. Um, It's published in the March edition of the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. nonsense words and real words. This wasn't just us saying nonsense words, but actually um, talking about the difference between a nonsense word and a real word, and our brain's ability to tell the difference between those two things. So when we all, when we look and like read words that we already know, our brain sees it like a picture, not as like a word with separate letters needing to be processed. So that was the finding at from a Georgetown University Medical Center study published in the Journal of Neuroscience, which shows that the brain learns words quickly by tuning neurons to respond to a complete word rather than parts of it. So basically, when you start learning words, right, you've got like this word here, generally you try and like sound it out, you know, you look at the first part, the first part's like a T and a H, so you go, then you add an O to it to make a th, and so on and so on, until you get a full word. So during this study, what they did was um, they gave a whole bunch of... They, got, they gave this group of people a whole bunch of nonsense words um, and asked them to learn it. So they gave them a while to learn those words. 
And while they were doing that, they actually had them being analyzing their brains using an fMRI machine, and they were using a technique called fMRI rapid adaption. So looking at the brain and as it changed as they were learning those words. And what they found was that originally the brain started responding to the words as nonsense words, but the way the neurons were um, responding to the words as they repeated them changed as they actually learnt the words, and eventually started responding to the nonsense words the same way they were responding to a real word, like flamingo. So um, this study's kind of one of the first of its kind to show neurons actually changing the way they're tuned to learn words, um, demonstrating how um, the brain's plasticity can work. So, like, so a brain's plasticity is its ability to learn and change from circumstances. So you're saying the brain's actually changing its thought patterns to go from this is not a word to this is a word I understand, and we can actually see this happening visually. Pretty much, yeah. Cool. So it's not, this study not only helped to reveal how brain processes words, but also gives an insight to how to help people with different reading um, disabilities. So for people who can't learn words by phonetically sounding them out and writing them and recognising the letters, but rather um, maybe teaching it as a visual object instead may actually help them understand the word. So rather than a whole bunch of little letters that make up a big picture, they're looking at the words as a big picture. For example, like rather than E-G-G being the word egg, they'd be looking at the whole word E-G-G as a whole thing, like a picture of an egg. So does that go against how we're traditionally taught to read now? Um, pretty much, yes, because how we're taught to read now and how most people is, is they sound out words and look, look at them as small parts of a whole. So this is just a different way of doing that and learning those words for people who can't quite understand how that process works. Yeah, in fact, um, after the team's first groundbreaking study on the visual dictionary, um, it was published in Neuron in 2009, um, Ryzen Huber said that they were contacted by a number of people who had experienced reading difficulties and teachers helping people with reading difficulties saying that learning the word as a visual object helped a great deal. So it revealed the existence of neural representation for whole written words. The current study shows how novel words can become incorporated after learning this. So the brain can rewrite its own dictionary? Pretty much. Cool. I think that's really cool, especially with um, the when mobile phones first came out, how we started talking with like emoticons and things like that. So we started replacing words with like actual pictures and things like that. And I think it's really interesting that that might connect together. And help people who have struggled in the past learning words, actually learning them visually rather than as different pieces. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. This week we got an insight into leadership in groups and how to read minds using infrared technology. Plus, we also found out how our brains adapt to nonsense words and how that may help us learn words better. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.